All right, last second headphone adjustment there. And faulty headphones where only one ear was working. That's not good. You can't do a radio show that way. Have you not sat in this seat before? Does it only one ear? I, well, it goes in and out unless you have the volume turned up really high, <laughs> which is I think the, I finally figured out why every time I, I come in here at 5 o'clock, I worry about the quality of Justin Bourne's hearing. Oh. And I think at the root now is uh, we have determined that this that there's something off here with when one headphone works in two because I have to turn it up pretty loud to get it in both. I Mine are... So, and when you turn it up loud, is one, like, louder than the other? Are you, no, like, off kilter? It, it hits You're... a critical point at which it stabilizes. <laughs> um, but right now, I have it turned down low enough that I, I'm only getting treble from you. I have no Ben Ennis bass, just treble. And my voice is very bassy, so you're missing it's out not. on a lot. Is it not? I don't think so. No. I think we have fairly similar voices, you know which what? is probably I, confusing to the listener. I've heard that, and I've gone back and listened to a couple of her programs, and I, I would agree that we have similar-sounding voices which um i'm i'm going to say is um a compliment to both of us because we both have great radio voices how about that uh i think you have a great radio. somehow i agree that we sound similar but i think you have a great radio voice and i sound like a giant nerd because all you're shut up. no all you're looking for is to be self-deprecating don't do that um i mean you had Furman beating virginia today your bracket <laughs> remains perfect no it congratulations doesn't. It doesn't, uh, because perfect i had bla- bracket um my depending on your so my big thing with bracketology is that you should always be very aware of what your league format is and how you can get the most points and uh i took west virginia over maryland in the 9-8 because i'm in a format where you should always pick the 9-8 upset you should right. almost always pick the 10-7 upset because as long as you're picking the one or two to make the sweet 16 uh you take the extra points and run in those spots and those are coin flip games anyway so i do have i do have a loss on the record in addition to the to the Furman w uh, i had west virginia over maryland no I, and i know you're mr basketball and you're knee deep in in nba prospects and your depth of knowledge of this tournament is incredible had you done your Furman research? Like, was that just a, hey, that's a an interesting school name? Like, no. I, cause honestly, I, I is this Furman's first time in the tournament? I, I, I can't say that I recall any big Furman moments. Is this the biggest moment in Furman school history? By the way, looked it up, South Carolina. Yeah, they're based in South Carolina. Um, I'd imagine a tournament win is is probably uh, the biggest deal for them. But no, this was more of a, again, to get into like the strategy of how you build a bracket. You don't want to go chalk, of course. No. You, you want to have some upsets in there. Chalk at the end, though. Yeah. Ch- well, I, I generally, like, I want two number one seeds in the final four, probably. Yeah. And probably no seed, like, uh, depending on the year. Like, there was that one year Kentucky was, I think, eight seed and went on a big run. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, if you if you believe, uh, if you want to believe in your own, uh, believe in, a, a, like, a legacy, like, a establishment team like Kentucky, you can do that. Um, I, I like was the Tar Heels to, this year. Yeah, I was trying to just bring up my uh, my bracket. Good good time for Yahoo to be down no, it's not uh, in the middle of March Madness. No, so the, the thinking behind Furman, and again, this is, bracket strategy is like okay who is when you're looking for an upset it's like okay well if that's wrong 
am I picking the other team to get knocked out in the next round anyway? Mm. And I am. Um, so if Virginia had gone on, I think San Diego State's a better team than Virginia. They profiled better analytically. San Diego State is winning uh, their game right now. So it's almost, it's not no risk because Virginia could go on. But once I once you know I'm not picking Virginia to win in the second round, that's when you start looking for your 13-4, your 12-5, your 11-6 upsets. Um, also, Virginia was just like, like based on some of the analytic models out there, Ken Palm and, and Bartorvik and yeah. uh, those kind of sites, um, Virginia was like really overseeded as a four seed. Did Ken Palm have uh, Brad Gushu winning another Briar? I don't know. Does he? He does He's do a curling. big yeah. curling dude. I, I I am fascinated by the existence of curling analytics. I know there's like a whole community around it. I, I haven't dove in. I'm I'm in that bus meme. It's I'm the the sad kid overthinking things out the window in every sport except curling. Right. Where all I know is that's Guju, where you can be a real Guju's got the dog in him. Like yeah, that that boy nice. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah, we're keeping our eyes on uh, the Aztecs who are leading Charleston, uh, 49-42, with uh, about 10 minutes to go in the second half. Let's start with um, the World Baseball Classic, which we've done quite a bit since it started, and I think for good reason. Um, we're starting with it today because something remarkable happened last night. First of all, we talked as we went off the air yesterday about the anticipation, excitement for this Puerto Rico-Dominican Republic winner-take-all game. And boy... Despite the, like the, I guess, sort of lopsided scoreline, it was living up to the billing. There were some incredible, incredible moments. Obviously, a ton of emotion throughout the entire thing. Edwin Diaz steps out in the, in the ninth inning trying to protect a three-run lead, and he's throwing gas, and there's former Blue Jay Teoscar Hernandez representing the 27th out, and he's working a great full count and fouling off tough pitches, and he... Diaz gets him on a called strike three to win the game and send Puerto Rico through to the quarterfinals and the heavily favored Dominican Republic, whose lineup was supposed to be unbeatable and it would have been maybe a little bit more with Vlad had he played. And no doubt the Blue Jays were sighing a sigh of relief <laughs> with the Dominican going out and him being in attendance to watch the thing. And then they're celebrating. And then like this insane thing happens where everybody stops celebrating and Edwin Diaz is on the ground. And his brother's crying, and they're trying to carry him, and he can't walk, and he's in a wheelchair, and he's being carted off the field. And we find out today that he's going to have surgery to repair a fully torn patellar tendon, which is an eight-month recovery. So the Mets, without the guy that has such a fun exit from the bullpen to close down games for basically the entire season, a year in which they're trying to win a World Series, and now we have to have this referendum on the World Baseball Classic. Is it good? Yeah, we absolutely do not have to have that referendum because, look, first of all, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., who everyone was worried about playing for the Dominican, uh, didn't play because he got hurt in a spring training game, which are meaningless. Like, they're just practice games. There's no... The injury risk is if there's a difference between spring training and World Baseball Classic um, because of the intensity or something like that, it's marginal. Um, they have studied this. Edwin Diaz will now skew uh, these numbers, of course, because he's he's going to miss an entire season. Um, but heading into this tournament over the first four WBCs, players who participated in the World Baseball Classic missed on average 2.5 extra days during the regular season following versus players who did not. Um, now, that could be when it's this small a tournament and not that many major league players are, are actually in it. That's the difference of like either one guy like Edwin Diaz 
getting hurt in a situation that we don't know. Maybe he would have got hurt in spring training, but the numbers are slightly, slightly higher for guys who play in the World Baseball Classic. Are you letting uh, an average of two, 2.5 days over the course of the season really persuade you if one of your players really wants to go? The other thing is I saw a lot of people saying, well, he got hurt in a meaningless game. First of all, he got hurt celebrating after the fact. It wasn't the baseball. Game is over. But how can you call a game meaningless when he gets hurt having that level of celebration because that game meant so much to those players and so much to Puerto Rican baseball? Like, there is no... You don't get baseball that intense and that meaningful until you're down to wild card time or, or like last day clinching a playoff spot. But time. That, that might be fuel to the, the fire of the argument who are arguing against this tournament, right? That it is such a bizarre time of year for these players to being at full bore. And it doesn't apply be, to the Diaz injury. I understand that. But if you go beyond that, I guess that they, they would say, hey, this is OK. Maybe not necessarily why we hate this tournament, but we hate this tournament because it's the risk of injury is higher because players are not usually at this high intensity in March. Right. You're going nine out of 10 instead of seven out of 10, like you may be. And even if the differences are small, the differences exist and teams have to be aware of that. I just think the, the way that some people, and I don't mean to straw man, but there were some people tweeting about this, writing article or including this line of thinking in articles and think pieces today and stuff that these game and calling these games meaningless. Mm. And, and I don't think that's the argument to be made. The argument to be made is whether we need to try to come up with a, a more logical time of year or way to do this tournament where guys aren't coming in cold into these intense spots. That is reasonable, but suggesting that Edwin Diaz got hurt in a meaningless game or celebrating a meaningless game is silly. Maybe it doesn't mean the world to American players or, or Canadian players where we don't have a, a huge baseball culture of at the international level here. Uh, watch those games and tell me that the shots of the dugout of the Dominican Republic team absolutely stunned that they didn't make it on or the Puerto Rican team celebrating or the Mexican team, you know, with Randy or Rosarena having to spend every moment between every inning signing autographs and, yeah. and hanging out with fans because there are so many fans that made the trip. Cuba is going to play a semifinal game in Miami yeah, be nice. in the days coming up. Watch that game and the fans that are there, um, the Cuban migrants to Miami and, and the players on that team and just the atmosphere around that game in general and tell me that that's, Meaningless. Watch Mike Trout last night. Absolutely locked well, in. Well, that's the most important like, game he's ever played in yeah, his life. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, Shohei has been a monster yeah. in all these games. What, he is look at all those things and tell me that these are meaningless games. I won't. We can discuss a better way to do the tournament, but the whole idea that the WBC shouldn't exist or shouldn't exist in this format mm. because it means too much, actually, to some of these players. And, again... Just keep in mind, Edwin Diaz did not throw out his arm trying no. to give it too much on the mound. Dude, I still haven't seen the the definitive video of exactly is, how it happened. There isn't definitive video. There's like there are a couple camera angles of it where basically a cameraman is standing off to the side of a scrum where everyone's kind of jumping in a circle and he's trying to get a shot of it, but all you can see is a mess of legs. Yeah. 
and everyone's wearing the same pants. Yeah. It's regret. Maybe that's the, the secret to identifying injuries in the future is everyone's got to wear you know, different pants. It's funny because I bet you they – it used to be that you celebrated a massive baseball win by, like, dog pile. Like, everybody jumps on – but that was too dangerous, and I think people moved away from that. I think the celebration that they were doing yesterday was to protect against injury. We all remember the Kendris Morales celebration at home plate after hitting a walk-off home run that cost him an entire season, changed the course of his entire career after that. Baseball's weird that way. Chen Ming Wong, I remember, broke his foot, like, stepping on home plate. Like There's, there's no shortage, like, Clint Barnes injured oh, yeah, himself the carrying meat. venison. Yeah. Like, and now baseball players aren't allowed to eat venison That's because of that. What, what are we going to do? There's no, I don't know, what, is it a Seinfeld bit where David Putty's uh, high five is too strong? It's, yeah. like, too good a high five? Yeah. Someone going to, we say no more jumping in circles, and then yeah. someone's going to tear their UCL receiving too tough a <laughs> high five. Uh, you cannot ask for emotional baseball with real stakes and then be like oh yeah don't celebrate or don't try really hard because you might get hurt it's it's really 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 unfortunate and it's unfortunate that of all teams it happens to the Mets who constantly lol the Mets um and happens to a guy who's such a likable figure yeah it's all unfortunate there's nothing Timmy Trumpet is back into irrelevancy right Mm -hmm. like like what do they do with him well, now he can write a second song. This is my, my thought is Edwin Diaz. Should, like, it would be a really funny bit if he learned the trumpet while he was rehabbing. He's just like, he's just like in the Mets own. dugout playing the, whoever wins the closer job. Yeah. Edwin Diaz plays them out to the, uh, to the mound. All right. So we'll, we'll talk to John Morosi uh, about this and, and more WBC uh, things after six o'clock. Um, but yeah, speaking of games of import, there's perilously few remaining for the Leafs before the end of the regular season. I would have said yesterday was one of them, like a litmus test game against the defending champs. It was played like a playoff game against the Avalanche. Perilously few chances during the course of the 65 minutes uh, played uh, normal-ish hockey. When you say it was played like a playoff game, do you mean the Leafs' offense uh, completely disappeared? Yeah, I mean, you could take it that way, perhaps. That was the second worst. I mean, worst is we'll try to be objective about what worst is here. The second least eventful offensive game for the Leafs on the entire season. Yeah. And that's with five extra minutes. Yeah. So that, I mean, you can take that as a negative. They also um, limited the, again, defending champs offensively. Uh, A lot of that was Samsonov. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he, I think he only had two high danger uh, save attempts, five on five though, and, and made all of his high danger saves because that's what he does. And the one goal coming on the power play, I think that the biggest thing that stood out to not just me, not just you, everybody was the ice time minutes set by both Austin Matthews and Mitch Marner. Uh, Matthews with the season high, twenty six minutes and fifty two seconds. Marner with a career high. 29 minutes and 10 seconds now. A lot of that has to do with special teams. And we talked about this at the end of yesterday's show. Kind of a prescient show, actually. We're talking about ice time. Um, and that Marner his gets boosted because of the all situations um, that he plays in. My question to you, though, Blake, is, is that something that you want to you want to see in a regular season game as much of a litmus test as it may be against the defending champs your number one priority here in the final, what, 15, 16 games of the season is to stay healthy. It seems like if you're playing half the game, that's you're not maybe doing your most to that end. The only explanation I could really come up with, with for why they would turn up the ice time intensity that high 
is about a month out here. Maybe, and we did talk about yesterday how Austin Matthews averaged 25 minutes a game in the playoffs two years ago, and last year was down to like 22 minutes. He has not played, you mentioned it's a season high for him, it's a career high for Mitch Marner. So that's completely new for them. The only explanation I could come up with, and this is maybe giving Sheldon Keefe and the Leafs organization too much benefit of the doubt, it's just searching for an answer. They are well aware of that and intending to ratchet up the minutes for those guys come postseason time. And as part of getting ready for the postseason, they wanted to or want to down the stretch here, give those guys a couple opportunities, like see what it feels like, see what a recovery day the next day feels like, um, see how you feel going 26, 27, 28 minutes, and then having the next day off completely see how you feel on Friday. There aren't back-to-backs in the playoffs, so you could run this kind of cadence. Um, I also wonder if there's a little bit of there are four back-to-backs left in this last little stretch, and maybe there will be the odd day off, and they're kind of looking at the the total load that way. But really, the only explanation I could come up with is they want they don't want it to be a complete shock to the system if these guys have to play 27, 28, 29 minutes in a playoff game. No, I have no problem with it. There, like I said, there's nothing to play for, really, for the rest of this regular season. I suppose it can, you know, it's, it's tight as far as home ice advantage against the Lightning in the first round of the playoffs, which they had last year and still lost. Game seven on home ice, yada, yada, yada but you want it. You'd rather have it as opposed to not have it. But no, this is the time for 11 and seven. It's the time for experimentation. It's the time for, Hey, I'll, we're going to play this one out. We're going to play the ice time. Like we would during a postseason game. If we do 11 and seven, can you guys handle that workload? I mean, I guess, yeah, the, it, going back to the Edwin Diaz thing, like the, the, the potential for injury exists as it does in any hockey game, especially the way Mitch Marner plays defense and a great block shorthanded yesterday. Uh, adding to his selkie case this year but no this is there's there's so little to play for i wouldn't suggest that you do this the rest of the way with like still 15 games to go during the regular season but like pick and choose your spots to run what you think is your your playoff style 60 minutes 100 percent. i have no problem with that i think and that's the only explanation that really makes sense because sheldon keefe has not given the impression over the course of the years that he is the type of coach who will redo the game plan on the fly to take a regular season win. We haven't seen him really do that all that often. So um, it doesn't make a lot of sense unless you believe that. I guess the one area where it becomes a tiny bit concerning is the game where you played Matthews and Marner so much is, by the way, I just looked it up. Um, This is at all strength. So not just five on five in the last three years, Mm -hmm. only once have the Leafs had fewer shot attempts in a, in a game on a per 60 basis. Uh, and that was the Red Wings game that they won four to two earlier in the year, uh, where they just like were perfect shooting. Um, so that's maybe a little bit of a concern that Matthews and Marner did play so much, and the game went as poorly as it did. I don't really know. The only explanation I can come up with is they they told Matthews and Marner, "Hey, we're we're going to try to play you guys more than in the last two postseasons. Are you cool with that?" And the medical staff or sports science staff or whatever was, Hey, we should get them a game or two to see how the body responds and see how the recovery day needs to be uh, in response to that. That that's otherwise that was a lot of playing those guys in a game where they weren't really driving a ton of play uh, all to lose in a shootout. It wouldn't make a whole lot of sense to me if that's not the explanation. Yeah. Uh, Speaking of shooting percentage, you notice Pierre Engvall has three goals and four points in six games with the Islanders, shooting a robust 27%. But yeah, Pierre Engvall getting it done uh, for the Islanders who find themselves in a playoff spot in the Eastern Conference after the Bo Horvat deal. So. Here's what you do then, Pierre Engvall. If yeah. your shooting skill is so high, yeah. 
average two shots a game once. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, create some offense then if your shot is good. I'm, I'm being facetious. I like Pierre Engvall. I think it made sense for him to be an outbound piece. I, I thought it was hilarious that the Islanders thought they were getting, like, a really physical player because he's tall. And yeah. they look at the hockey card height and weight. And it's like, oh, yeah, this will be... This will be a guy that that's going to bang. And it's like, no, 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 no. He is a huge finesse guy. Mm-hmm. Um, but nice to see him having success. You know, I think you want your guys to, even if it doesn't work out here, you want them to go on and have success at their, at their next stop. So it lets you know you're developing talent well. And, uh, you know, if you have to make a trade with the Islanders again in the future, you didn't sell them, you know, you didn't give them a lemon. But, uh, yeah, where, where was this 27% shooting percentage uh, the rest of the season, the Honestly. rest of the career? Yeah, I don't expect it to continue. But uh, kudos to uh, Pierre Engvall and the Islanders. Uh, before we take the break, and we'll talk to Michael Grange after the break about what is a pretty marquee game for the Raptors tonight, hosting Shea Gilgis-Alexander, who, again, has led his Thunder team, which is at the tail end of this rebuild, build-up, uh, has led them into a play-in position. Like, they're just they're hanging on, and it helps when teams like the Lakers go out and lose to the Rockets, which we may get to later on in the program. Oh, boy. But uh, he's been spec-freaking-tacular um, and is potentially an all-NBA player this season. He is going to... Look, I dove into a lot of... So I have a piece up at sportsnet.ca today about OG Ananobi and all the magnificent things he does defensively, some reporting on the new CBA in there, and then basically the the thing that people will care about most relevantly right now or most immediately is went through the history of the all-defense and defense player of the year voting. Guess who doesn't get those positions? Mm-hmm. Guys on losing teams. That's guys it. on teams that are below average defensively. Uh, that would apply to Shea Gilgis-Alexander most years as well. He's also missed a chunk of time. Um, he's only, pl- only quote-unquote, played 58 games, which I, I think is probably still among the leaders for uh, stars in the NBA this year. It's only 11 games missed. Um, he is fighting an uphill battle for that spot because the Thunder are 34 and 35. But with the introdu- introduction of the play-in spot, with the positive buzz the Thunder have had basically all season, yeah. with the fact that in those Tim Bontemps MVP bowls that I do three times a year, Shea Gilgis-Alexander was getting down-ballot MVP votes on both of those. Like, not only was this, hey, he could get all NBA, people are like, no, he's number five in MVP voting because without him, this Thunder team is not even remotely close to 500 rather than being yeah. and maybe being the team that keeps LeBron out of the playoffs. Um, he's fantastic. And, and if there's any part of you that hasn't watched a ton of Thunder basketball, first of all, how dare you? Mm-hmm. Uh, second, like if, if you're worried that there's an element of Canadian sensationalism and this is the next great Canadian hype thing and, you know, Wiggins has turned into a very, very good player, but maybe not what was hoped for the number one pick. R.J. Barrett has turned into a pretty solid player, but maybe not what was hoped at draft time. Uh, There is none of that to Shea Gilgis-Alexander. Watch this game closely tonight. He can be a little up and down defensively. They don't ask him to be a dog defensively because everyone else on that roster can defend like hell. He gets, you know, the the kind of easier uh, assignment where possible. Um, he uses length okay defensively, but you're going to see on offense a guy who is just magnificent. He is so crafty. He does things that you don't expect him to do because no one else really does them. Um, he does it at volume. He makes his teammates better. He also just plays a super fun style of offensive basketball. Uh, if you don't come away from a game like this tonight where I'd imagine he's fired up and is going to put up 30-plus, 
and you don't come away not only wanting to see that guy for Team Canada, but wanting to see the Thunder get good so you can see more of that guy on national TV and on Sportsnet uh, for out-of-market games and stuff like that the next few years, uh, I don't know what you're watching because he's magnificent, he's efficient, he's unique. Uh, there's nothing to the Shea Gilgis-Alexander package that doesn't scream superstar as soon as this team gets good. Yeah, no, and they might be good enough to at least play in a play-in game this year. Way against ahead of schedule. And, and against LeBron. So... Yeah, one of the questions I had ready for Michael Grange was like, this is a big moment for anybody that has paid attention to his season and is enjoying the NBA season writ large outside of the Raptors. But as far as the like the the greater Canadian sports fan, are they aware of what Shea Gilgis-Alexander is doing and what he means to this league and the future of this league? I don't think so, but getting into a play-in game and maybe winning one against LeBron and the Lakers and they've beaten them already couple of times this this regular season, and I believe with LeBron in the lineup too. Mm-hmm. Actually, that was the, the game he, he broke uh, the record. Was it not yes. against the Thunder? Yeah. And, 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 well, not broke his foot, but yeah. basically broke his foot. Yeah, and for context, like, look, Shea's not going to win MVP. And the, the high watermark in Canadian basketball is, of course, Steve Nash winning consecutive MVPs. Yep. Um, it's not the best stat in the world, win shares. It's one of the... You know, we don't we don't have some of the analytics I'd want to turn to in like an actual MVP vote scenario for some of Steve Nash's, you know, earlier years. But we can say this based on win shares and then using win shares to guide us through, you know, the points per game, assists per game, shooting percentage, stuff like that. The season Shea's having would arguably be Steve Nash's third best season. Yeah, that's not. So we're talking about then the best season by a Canadian where he didn't win an MVP. Well, and Steve, as Michael points out in his piece, was like peaking in his late 20s, early 30s, right? Mm -hmm. Or or as Steve Nash posted himself on Twitter, yeah, I think Shea could be better than me. Yeah, and uh, maybe already this season, even if he uh, doesn't. uh... Well, here's what you have to do, Shea. (laughs) The one thing Steve Nash couldn't do, bring Canada success at the international level. That'd be good. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be nice. Uh, we'll see him tonight, though, down at Scotiabank Arena. Uh, Raptors favored in this game, as they were against the Nuggets uh, a couple of days ago as well. We'll talk to Michael Grange next as the fan drive time continues. Ben Ennis, Blake Murphy, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. Everything Raptors before and after the games. The Raptor Show with Will Liu. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fan drive time, Sports Time 59, the fan, Ben Ennis, Blake Murphy. Happy Shea Day. Oklahoma City Thunder in town to play the Raptors tonight down at Scotiabank Arena. It's a, it's a class of two in NBA history to average 31 points, five assists, one and a half steals, and one block per game in a season. It's Shea Gilchrist Alexander, and it's Michael Jordan. Hmm. So, Michael, you're, you're hitting me with the Thad Young. Do you remember that old screenshot when Thad Young was with the Bulls? There was like, there are only five players in NBA history to average these numbers. It was like four, like inner circle Hall of Famers and Thad Young, but the cutoffs were so random. I'm like 4.7 rebounds, 1.9 assists. Yeah. Okay. Well, whatever. Uh, Shea's having a spectacular, spectacular year. The, the story on sportsnet.ca is Canada's Gilgis Alexander is matching Nash's greatness, but could he surpass it? Um, Steve Nash has since weighed in on Twitter and said, yeah, uh, Michael Grange joins us now, sports and so on. So I, I guess he kind of spoiled that for, for all of us. He answered it. That's right. Yeah. So yeah, just look at the tweet and move on. Don't have to read the story. It's all good. 
but yeah, it's um, it's. I wasn't all that surprised that Steve uh, weighed in that way because you know if you remember, he was uh, general manager of Canada Basketball's men's team when he put Shea and RJ Barrett on the 2016 Olympic qualifying team, and people at the time were like, it was actually a little bit controversial because people looked at RJ and thought it was kind of a you know a, a thing because of his dad and it wasn't obviously and. And then Shay, like barely anybody knew who he was, and so they thought it was, you know, kind of a favor to, you know, some kind of favor of some strange way. And um, but you know, Rowan Barrett, his credit, and Steve Bentnash back then, they kind of saw something, and uh, it wasn't very long before uh, Shay really exploded. And um, you know, he's and even even in early in Shay's career, Steve was always a, a big supporter. So it was nice that he uh, he made that retweet. It's been cool to watch Shea's progression and see some of the point guards he's gotten to learn from. And you laid out the Steve Nash thing there. Um, I, I remember back in his rookie year, I was down in L.A. doing a story on him. And, and Sam Casal was with the Clippers at that point and was kind of mentoring from him from a, a point guard perspective. Um, obviously, through the national team, through through being around the NBA long enough, you, you get to play off of a lot of guys and pick from a lot of guys. Um Michael, I'm, this is maybe a little too in, in the specifics of, of what Shea's game is like. You can learn a lot from Sam Cassell and from Steve Nash in terms of how to conduct yourself, how to lead a team, stuff like that. Is there anyone for Shea to learn from on the court? Because I don't, I can't think of a single player who's ever looked like Shea looks offensively. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, I think what's what makes Shea so special and why I really don't think it's all that hyper, all that much hyperbole to you know, kind of say he's on the path to being, you know, as good as he could be is, as you point out, he's got this really uh, very special physical package in terms of his length and quickness and all of that. But I, I, I would say that I do see um, some Steve Nash. I see some Chris Paul. And, and so what you have is a guy who plays at kind of one level. Um, you don't see him bouncing up and down and, and, and he, he kind of, and this I know Steve has always worked with players in the past is just, you know, kind of keep your, keep your kind of your hinge hinged, so to speak, like stay low. Don't, don't have your, don't have your, your legs get straightened too much. Keep your dribble low and tight. And Chris Ball does that. Nash did that. I think a lot of really good point guards try and do it. And uh, I know Steve worked with Kevin Durant in doing that. And that seemed to work out pretty well. Um, but, you know, so you basically what I'm saying is, is you have a guy who's got this, world-class athletic uh, package that's incorporating the tricks of the trade that guys like Nash or Paul or Dennis Schroeder, who's another guy who's credit to, um, he, he's been able to learn along the way. And, and, and I think the reason to be so excited about, about Shea is he's doing all this at 24. And, uh, you know, point guards generally take a little longer to kind of get it all smoothed out, but he's going to be an all-NBA player. He's, uh, you know, kind of the statistical milestones he's hitting, um, you know, at the age he's doing it. It's just, you know, it really is kind of a generational type stuff. Michael, it's it's the age that that's so encouraging with with the level of play. But to me, it's also the combination of that age, still being a pretty young player, being in your fifth year in the league, um, being in a, a rebuilding situation and already having or at least carrying himself with some of those leadership qualities you just talked about from the guys he's learned from. Um, it's not an easy thing, I don't imagine, to navigate 
a, a tanking situation the last couple of years. Now they're obviously on, on the upswing and they're in a play-in spot right now. Um, but, you know, you could have looked at Shea's second and third seasons, his first two years in OKC, and been a little skeptical. Like, okay, yeah, looter in the riot. Uh, they're not trying to win games. Every touch is there for you. But it really seems that, and, and you know Shea pr- pretty well at this point, and I think both of us have, to, have talked to Oklahoma City Thunder people about this over the years. Um, it really does seem like, the Thunder being ahead of schedule here and being a culture-oriented team that, that's winning by, you know, kind of by their identity, maybe more so defensively than offensively, but Shea's a real part of that. And, you know, we think of point guards as leaders, but not often until they're veteran guys. Um, how special is Shea in that regard as a, a teammate, a leader, and as someone who could, whether it's OKC or Canada basketball this summer, you know, be kind of the steadying force for a team? Uh, yeah, I think those are all great points. And, you know, it can backfire sometimes when, you know, basically you're handed the keys to a team, which is what happened after his first year in OKC and they made the trade. You know, they, they you know, they made, he made the playoffs when he was there with Chris Paul and Schroeder. And then they decided to go into this really deep rebuild. And, you know, statistically, Shea's numbers, those two years, the last two years have been amazing. But if you recall, he was shut down very early each season with injuries. And so you kind of, as you point out, you're like, does this matter? Um, but what you've seen this year is that, he, you know, it's, it's almost like he's dragged the team along, the organization along to say, look, <laughs> I'm real. I'm about winning and we're not going to mess around the lottery anymore. We're going to win games. So no one's setting me down. And, you know, in fact, he's just coming off a little injury that maybe in other years might have shut him down. And and I think the reason he gets away with that is because he's doing it all in a way the, the organization can kind of go, look, we're done waiting for a star. He's our star. So let's start kind of um, respecting him in that way. And, um, and I think OKC's done a really good job in terms of who they brought in. And, and you just hear really good things about the character of their organization. They don't have those kind of vets around us who to kind of lead the way they've kind of let Shea lead the way. And, and he's, you know, talking to Kelly Olenek and other guys who've known him and being around him a little bit, he is kind of special in the sense that he's, you know, first of all, his game on the floor talks, that's always the most important thing, but he carries himself in a kind of an unobtrusive, mature, chill way that I think, you know, isn't going to rub other people the wrong way, but in, in terms is, is going to draw people to him. And, and I think, you know, you couple that with his on-court performance, it's a really good formula. You couple that with it's coming from your point guard, it's even better. And, um, you know, and I think he's not everyone could take all those opportunities and capitalize them on, on them the way he has. And, and the fact he has speaks to his character, but it also uh, speaks to where this is all this all could be heading. Might, might be time for the Thunder to start trading away some of those draft picks. Six upcoming in the 23 draft, four first-round picks in 2024. Uh, time to start sending those out the door for, like, some win-now players uh, when you have Shea Gilgis-Alexander playing the way he has and maybe leading this team, like we said, they're in a play-in position right now. I mean, this is a two-fold thing, Michael. Like, how important is it maybe for Shea's development as a player of course with some playoff experience previously but not in this role but also for the the building the continuing to build of his star in in the nba and just as a sporting star as large uh, at, at large to to get into the playing tournament and maybe you know have a game against lebron james and anthony davis yeah i think that would be huge i i kind of think that they're, they're going to do it 
Um, and, you know, it, it would be the kind of incremental – look, I think this year has been proven a success, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So they just they just get squeezed out by one or two. Like, it's not going to, you know, cause a problem. But I think, you know, Shea deserves – and I think a lot of the young guys – I mean, this is a really good young roster that's bought in to the right way to play. I mean, you're going to watch them tonight. They move the ball better than the Raptors do. <laughs> you know, they're, they're more active and, and – multi-dimensional defensively than the Raptors are like, like they're a very well coached team of guys who have bought in to playing for each other. And, um, you know, so I think organizing everyone deserves maybe a chance to not play in game and maybe make some noise there. Um, it's going to be super fascinating. And I ask people in the league when I bump into them all the time, it's usually about the third thing I want to talk about is what are they going to do with all these picks and around the trade deadline, you would look at it and, you know, you wondered if maybe they're going to make a move there. And part of the challenge is they've, they've, they're so young, they just don't even have those kind of contracts that you can attach to a pick or two to bring back, you know, uh, you know a substantial player. And, and so it's going to be um, really, really, I still don't really understand what they're going to do with it all, other than, you know, keep swinging. And you look at uh, Jalen Williams, who I think they got Ooh. The first pick I think they got out of the uh, Paul George trade, I believe, and he was, uh, I believe, 11th or 12th overall, and he's looking like he's going to be, you know, as good as you can imagine, right? Like he's having a rookie year that, you know, it's a little bit under the radar, but in terms of, you know, I think with rookies, when you see guys who are super efficient with a decent volume as rookies, like it just never seems to go anywhere but up, right? Because it's clear that they're, they got the brains as well as the uh, physical abilities, and um, so that's just one, right? And then they've got, I was watching Chet Holbrun shoot around this morning after shoot around. You know, there's another guy. People have forgotten about him, but he's <laughs> going to be attached to this roster very soon. And then, so what do you do with all those picks? I wish I had an answer. I haven't even seen a plausible explanation uh, as to what they can do other than maybe just package and keep moving up and who knows. But wow. it's, uh, it's to me, it's like a pretty good, like I'd, I'd love to be an OKC fan right now. It'd be it'd be so fun. It would be, and you know, you mentioned Jalen Williams, who another guy. I hope fans get a close look at tonight because he's awesome. Another guy with um, tangential ties to this conversation because he went to Santa Clara. So I'm sure Steve Nash is a fan of him too. Uh, and we'll see uh, we'll see if he's got eyes on the the tournament this weekend. Um, the other the, the answer to your question though, Grange, is what do you do with all these picks and, and not having the salaries to to match salary? Well, in the off season, that matters a lot less because you have all this cap space you could just absorb guys uh i don't know maybe there's a trade here with your toronto raptors who could use some extra pick equity if this thing flames out and doesn't have a clear path to uh improving the roster and i'm not really being serious but i do look at what oklahoma city is good at and where they need things and i think og ananobi would be but just about a perfect fit there as a as a piece to add to that mix as they keep moving forward um Grange, we got to pivot it, obviously, to the the question that comes up anytime we're talking about a Jamal Murray or Shea Gilgis-Alexander or even a Lou Dort. Um, Shea has the contract extension now. He has, I would imagine, um, the relationship with the Oklahoma City Thunder that they trust him and they trust him to take care of his, his body and be honest if anything comes up, things like that. 
The FIBA World Cup is this summer. Shea has been just about the most committed big-name player over the years to consistently coming out for, for Canada or at least talking about how he wants to be there for big events. In reporting out this story um, and your earlier Jamal Murray piece, it's Canada Basketball and Michael Grange Week. Um, do you have a sense of where those guys are leaning right now or what the likelihood is we might see the next step in Shea's development be leading a Team Canada on the world stage? Yeah, I feel pretty good about Shay. I asked Mark Daniel today um, uh, that exact question, and you know, he made with the proviso of, "Listen, you know, it's a long season, blah blah blah. It's their decision." But organizationally, at least, you know, he was saying OKC really sees value in guys, and let's not forget Lou Dort, who has also been very committed, and you know, certainly was found very positive on the subject when I spoke with him this morning. Um, so I would be more surprised than not. If if Shea, what what I mean to say is I, I'd be very surprised if Shea is not uh, playing for Canada this summer at the World Cup. Um, and the, the Jamal Murray one is as you might predict based on his injury and based on the Nuggets ambitions and based on the fact he still had some you know kind of residual knee issues uh, very lately here. Uh, it was very he was very I don't want to say cool. That's probably not the right word. But he was—he wasn't like, you know, jumping at the opportunity to talk about Canada basketball this summer. I'll put it that way. So uh, I would say we'll see. Yeah, and that's understandable to some degree. Um, so yeah, we'll be watching Shea Gilgis Alexander. We'll also be watching the guys with the gray uniforms. Ben Taylor back in action. <laughs> uh, first matchup against Fred Van Vliet uh, since uh, he went off in 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 that post game media scrum. Cost himself a couple. Uh, thousands uh, of dollars. Um, what, what do you expect tonight? Like, will there be like a pregame reconciliation between the two? Uh, is there a conversation to be had between Fred and Ben? If I was Fred, I'd make that effort for sure. Um, I don't know if I was Ben Taylor. If I, you know, there's nothing that Fred Van Vliet said that would encourage me to accept any kind of, you know, act of re- reconciliation. I mean. You know, Fred went for it, and, you know, I think he spoke his truth, so to speak, and a lot of people um, kind of shared his frustration, but it was a personal attack in the harshest possible way, um, in a very public way. So, you know, I wouldn't be in a hurry to go over and say, it's okay, Fred, we're all good. I so think we'll see. I think he should do what Japanese pitcher Roki Sasaki did after he hit a Czech player with a hundred mile an hour fastball. Just bring him a big bag of candy yeah. to say sorry. I think that's that the move. For me. I'm sure Fred has candy yeah. around the house with with two put kids it, and a baby it, around. If Ben Taylor is that easy to win over, he's a bigger man than I would be. <laughs> put it that way. Well, this is why well, you're not a. Like, well, I mean, I'm telling you, like, like I was, I give Fred all the credit in the world for saying it. But it was harsh. Yeah, it was really harsh. And uh, if somebody talked like that, about like that, like me, publicly, you know, it'd be a long time before we'd we'd uh, be seeing that eye. Well, here's the thing, Michael. No one would talk to you like that publicly because you would be above that. You would be better at your job. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, before that, you go. We got Zach Eady making his tournament de- debut tomorrow. Uh, we- he's likely to be the uh, NCAA. Player of the year, he already won the Associated Press Award. Uh, as his Boilermakers are a one seed, they get Furley uh, Dickinson. What what is his outlook like? I, I was just looking at some mock drafts today. Saw him 
midway in, in, through the, the second round as a, a potential selection, the upcoming NBA draft. I mean, we talk about the World Cup uh, the, this summer. Like, what is, what is his outlook on both the national stage and, and the NBA stage? I think he's going to get drafted. I, I mean, I think he's got an excellent chance to be the player of the year, um, obviously. But, um, you know, I, I, I see most of the draft stuff I've seen has kind of seen often kind of low second round and i'll be surprised if he's not higher than that Hmm. i don't think he's a first round pick but um you know i think when you see a guy you know what you look at uh zubach with the clippers for example right i mean he's huge he can get rim to rim pretty good he can finish with authority when he's there and uh you know he can kind of keep up with the play um and that i think is maybe a good role model i think if you're kind of really dreaming i mean could could you know could edb something like lopez's with milwaukee i mean that's a lot of skill development he'd have to go into to get there because you know robin lopez is a pretty special offensive player as well as being giant but um you know i think i think those are kind of guys that that zach Eady should be patting his uh, game after and i wouldn't be surprised if someone gives him a chance uh, to do it, and I'd be disappointed if people just kind of pencil him as kind of like Bo, you know Boban Moravich, and you know he's just like a you know an occasional situational guy off the bench. And if that's where it's going to end up for him, because he ends up with the wrong team with the wrong imagination, I would hope he would go to Europe. But he's you know he's still very early in his development, and you know I think the most exciting thing about him besides just being enormous is he's he can really get up and down the floor like he moves really well he can catch the ball really well um he shows signs of having a nice touch to go with that size so you know the game's moving away from what he's best at but that doesn't mean he can't you know kind of uh be a little bit of a of a of a change up for around the league I'm with you, Granger, and I I see things like the the improvement as a free throw shooter on even higher volume, and you can at least see where the work is coming in, and that there is an element of skill progression, and this isn't just a seven foot four guy in his third season figuring out how to be seven foot four more effectively. Um, he navigates space on defense a, a little bit better. I, I also get curious about what if he got in with an NBA strength and conditioning staff that had a whole off season to work with him on hip mobility and, and tracking space and things like that. Um, not to always do the Canadian guy in the Raptors thing. He is also, um, you know, first generation Canadian to Chinese immigrant parents, which I think would be a really big hit in this market in a similar way to what we've seen with the way Delano Banton has resonated with the the 905 and the Rexdale community and things like that. Um, I think there are a lot of paths to Zach Eady getting an opportunity. Unfortunately, though, Grange, with all rookies coming in, um, I, I would guess and maybe you can correct me if i'm wrong because he has been a part of the program even flying down in summer league last year for the the kind of canada basketball summit of sorts um would have to think heading into a rookie season he's probably out of the mix for the world cup right i wouldn't think so i mean they had him on that that list knowing uh you know the possibility would be he'd be coming out this year so um well that's nice to hear you know, I, I haven't asked that specific question. You're right. Usually summer league gets into it and then whoever gets drafted by wants, you know, wants their hands on as much as they can. But the flip side is it's an opportunity for a rookie player to get exposed to an incredible 
uh, level of basketball, you know, very early in his career. And, and, you know, a smart organization might say, yeah, go come to come with us to summer league. And then, uh, you know, we'll, we'll monitor you at the world cup and, uh, you know, good luck with it. So we'll see. We'll see. I, I haven't heard, it's probably worth asking if him coming out and being drafted would automatically preclude him. But, um, I, I, I don't, I, you know, I would say this, like Zach really wants to play mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, he's very, and it's been a, really good for his development playing alongside the Kelly Olenek and the Dwight Powell and, you know, Shea Gilgis Alexander, like, you know, he, that's a big reason. I think he's really taken a big leap this year, this year. Under an NBA head coach in that program as well, and Nick Nurse and someone who would, you know, probably be thinking with an NBA mind in terms of how to best utilize him. So uh, maybe a, a fit there for whatever team ends up with Zach Eady. Uh, Michael Grange, I know you've got some uh, some pregame media to get to, so thanks so much for taking the time out, man, and awesome, awesome job on uh, the Murray and Shea features this last little bit. Has me very fired up for the World Cup months and months in advance. Thanks. Uh, thanks a lot, Blake, and uh, good stuff too with the OG. All defense thing. I'm, I'm, uh, hopefully you'll open some eyes with that one. <laughs> hopefully. Thanks, Grange. Take care. Bye. See you, Michael. Michael Grange of Sportsnet. Again, Raptors and uh, Oklahoma City Thunder and Ben Taylor tonight uh, at Scotiabank Arena. We'll get to your OG uh, breakdown of just how good defensively he's been. Uh, Pretty good. After 630. I can, don't spoil it. Like Steve Nash <laughs> spoiled Grange's piece. Hey, yeah, no I, traffic at sportsnet.ca today because we're giving away all the answers. OG's good at defense, <laughs> and Shea could be as good as Steve Nash. Tidy, nice and tidy, unless Fred Taylor, Fred, Fred Taylor, uh, Jaguars legend, Fred Taylor, uh, unless Bill's Fred legend. Van Bleet and Ben Taylor get into it again tonight. Uh, yeah, no sportsnet.ca. The OG piece, the Shea piece, we spoiled them. Oops. Uh, all right, you know what? I think we'll get into the OG piece next because uh, John Morose is going to join us at the back end of the 6 o'clock hour. Oh. Do that. Got lots to to come on the old program here. It's uh, Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, The Fan, Ben Ennis, Blake Murphy.